0: Okay, Jesse, last week was so tragic. What's the story this time around?
1: A twisty, frustrating investigation turns Michigan police chief down a road of murder, depravity, possible cannibalism, and a potential serial killer with victims that are still unknown. But it also delivers a love story made for the movies. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi Andy, hi Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about love gone fatally wrong, whether it's deadly love triangles, jilted exes, or a husband-wife murder pact.
0: You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast.
1: And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. And if you leave us a review or you have in the past, just send us a DM and we will get you some free stickers. For sure. The stickers are so cute. Um, Also feel free to email us at lovers at lovemurder.love. We can also check your reviews there. Also, if you guys have any stories that you want to hear about in 2021, I would love to hear about them. Today is actually another listener request. It's our second from Allie A, who I love. Absolutely. And this one is a fascinating case that's kind of still unfurling. Um, You know, there. I'm going to tell you guys ahead of time that there is a conviction that is reached, but we still don't know a lot about this case. And that's why I think it's so, so, so fascinating. Uh, The sources that I use for today are the book Where Monsters Hide by M. William Phelps, who you may remember as the author of The Pleasant Valley Case. And I also watched Dead North, which is a four-part doc series by Investigation Discovery that was really well done. So I highly recommend both. I'll be quoting some parts of the M. William Phelps book, so I'll let you know when I do that. And, Andy, I don't want to really tell you anything else about the case. I kind of want to just jump in and let her rip. What do you think? I think that, I think that sounds good. Okay, okay, let's do it. Yeah. It was 20 minutes to 5 p.m. on October 27th, 2014, and Police Chief Laura Frizzo was just about to head home to her house in Michigan's Upper Peninsula when a desperate, blonde, middle-aged woman appeared, attempting to open the just-locked precinct doors. Can I help you? Chief Frizzo asked. The blonde woman was frazzled and seemed alarmed. My friend, it's my friend Chris. I think he's missing. Frizzo knew she wasn't going to be getting to go home anytime soon and unlocked the doors and invited the woman in. Little did she know that the case she was about to get involved with would span years. States take thousands of hours of her time and eventually lead her to a potential serial killer with two confirmed kills. This would be a case that would try her faith and resolve, both undo and define her career, and in a miraculous and mysterious way, ultimately lead her to the love of her life. I know. We don't often get like the love in the love murder, but we get a love story this time. I like that. I also like what you did there with the frizzo and frazzled. (laughs) That was completely unintentional. (laughs) should have worked a fraggle (laughs) into this is the story of tenacious laura frizzo and the capture of the diabolical killer kelly cochran who may have barbecued her murdered lover and fed him to her neighbors buckle up it's gonna be a bumpy barbecue ride yes, Ooh, we will salty. we will get there. It's salty. We will get there because this is just a possibility, and just one of the small things that we're gonna encounter in this story that will make you go, "What the heck?" okay, so let's go back to that moment. We're gonna like stay right there and we're gonna follow the investigation, okay, okay. The blonde woman was named Terry O'Donnell, a fifty three year old teacher who had been friends and lovers with the missing man, Chris Regan since the early eighties. Though things had not worked out romantically for the two, they still spoke or got together two to three times a week and considered the other a very close friend. It had been two weeks since she had heard from Chris and she had texted, called, and even gone to his apartment and banged on the door, but she had heard nothing.
0: Yikes. It's not good. Yeah, That's like
1: wellness check time. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what she's doing right now. Yeah, It was extremely unlike him to be out of touch. Furthermore, Chris had missed work for two weeks at Oldenburg Group, a company that manufactured defense and mining equipment that was wildly uncharacteristic for Chris, an Air Force veteran who had rose to the rank of master sergeant before retirement and valued punctuality and service. Through a coworker's tip, Terry had found Chris's sporty car, his prized possession, abandoned at a park and ride about 10 minutes outside of Iron River, where he lived. In the car were Chris's knee brace and a spittoon he used for chewing tobacco. Those were two things that he absolutely never went without. So this was highly suspect. Yeah. After Frizzo contacted more friends and family of Chris's, she discovered he'd been planning a move to Asheville, North Carolina with his adult son, expecting to leave November 1st. His son hadn't heard from him at all. He hadn't taken, yeah, real weird. And also really heartbreaking because there had been a kind of a bitter divorce between Chris and his ex and his two sons had kind of missed out on some parts of growing up with their dad. And this was really a chance for father and son to live together again and bond. and, And Chris was a avid bike rider And a big, like, hiking enthusiast, a, like, kayaker, outdoors enthusiast type guy. And him and his son had all these plans to do all this exciting stuff in North Carolina. And then all of a sudden, boop, his dad's gone. He can't hear from him. He's missing him right before they were supposed to go on this incredible move and journey together.
0: Oh, I hate this.
1: Oh, no, it's really, really sad. He also hadn't taken a mandatory drug test for his new dream job in Asheville. And his apartment was only half packed. All of his possessions were still in storage. So, this was not the case of a man who had decided to move early. It was the case of a man who had vanished from the face of the planet.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Conducting several interviews, Frizzo was pointed in the direction of Kelly Cochran, a married coworker at Oldenburg, who had been reportedly having an affair with Chris. In Chris's abandoned car, Frizzo had found a post-it note with directions to an address. As she prepared to head over to Kelly Cochran's home to interview her on the relationship with Chris, she realized that the directions on the post-it led directly to Kelly's house.
0: So he was sleeping with Terry
1: and Kelly? Well, Terry and him had kind of broken up. They were, okay. they remained friends. So okay. Terry and Chris had known each other for decades and okay. they had reconnected at some point and it was romantic. Um, but by the time this was going on and there was his disappearance, they were just really BFF. Cool, cool. Yep. Kelly and Jason Cochran lived in Caspian, a small town about five minutes from Iron River. They were originally from Indiana, neighbors who met as children and fell in love as young adults. They married in 2002 when Kelly was only 20 and Jason was 24. Now in their mid-30s, the longtime couple had settled in Michigan about 10 months prior to Chris's disappearance. Jason had a back injury and was on disability while Kelly had worked a string of jobs since relocating. She worked first at Ace Hardware at the cash register, as well as Mr. T's restaurant where she served tables. After a while, she quit both part-time jobs and secured a full-time position with Oldenburg doing what she loved, quote, building things, making and fixing things. Well, that
0: hardware job sounds clutch for her then.
1: Yeah, but I think she was, like, just copying keys and, like, checking people out. Still you get know? a discount. That's <laughs> true. You know? <laughs>
0: it's pretty awesome. I mean, if we would have gotten a discount at Home Depot over the past few years... Right? we I mean, it in.
1: You do not have time for any additional jobs. <laughs> you already have, like, four. <laughs> I'm putting... I- a moratorium on jobs for you, Andy. You're not allowed to moonlight at Home Depot so that you get a discount.
0: They are open late, so.
1: <laughs> Who needs sleep? <laughs> well, you're about to not get it anyways with a kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Kelly is a smart woman. Her IQ is high. She had graduated from Purdue University, majoring in psychology with a minor in forensics. She says... Yeah. So she's a smart cookie. She's just kind of a mess emotionally and personally. Okay. Yep. And it, I think she's also from a very early age had some uh, drug and alcohol dependency issues.
0: Did, do you think that caused her emotional instability?
1: It probably doesn't help. Yeah. I think it exacerbated things for sure. I don't know if it caused it, but I would say exacerbated, definitely. So she enjoyed her new job in electrical assembly. Military assembly, where Chris was a team leader, was directly behind where Kelly worked, and the two eventually had become close and then started an affair. The affair had stretched on for months, but had ended due to Chris's plan to move to North Carolina. So there's also an age difference here. Kelly's in her mid-30s and Chris is in his early 50s. So they That's seem. What I assumed. Yeah, they seem like a kind of an unlikely duo, especially because Kelly looks, we'll publish some pictures, obviously, on Instagram and Facebook. She looks a little rough around the edges. There's uh some mug shots. I mean, I was gonna say I don't want to give away too much, but I've already said that, you know, we know where we're going with her here. She looks rough, where Chris is just a really outgoing, fit, very healthy looking guy, like would never be involved with drugs, you know?
0: Yeah, and but, he's like outdoorsy and stuff, I'm sure.
1: Super he- outdoorsy, yeah. former military man, like very wholesome. I definitely think this was, they both got along because they were smart and there was a certain chemistry here for the two of them, you know? Yep. So Kelly and Jason, who Jason's Kelly's husband, were very upfront about their sex life with the interviews with the police. They claimed that Jason's back injury had caused sexual dysfunction to the point where he couldn't perform and he had allowed Kelly to seek out sexual relationships elsewhere. Okay. Which seems like a a deal. If you guys are cool with that, that seems like a healthy way to manage, you know, a marital issue. Officers were suspicious, though, after initial interviews because Kelly repeatedly referred to Chris in the past tense which is a huge red flag because he's just missing at this point. Like she yeah, was referring no to it <laughs> like he was dead. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's, it's like, that's like she's smart, but like t- almost too smart for her own good.
1: Like- I think absolutely. I mean, that yeah. that exact phrase, Andy, comes up a lot in this book okay. and in the documentary that I saw, which is like smart, but too smart for her own good in some ways. Like not street smart or like mm. obviously like stripped of
0: any sort of like emotional or social Common sense,
1: whether from drugs or not, and at different varying points that she's interviewed, she's clearly on something, which I think will yeah mess with how you're approaching interviews and your own intelligence, obviously.
0: Yeah, and keeping track of what you're saying, keeping track of of what you're saying.
1: Yeah, that's I can't do that right now in pregnancy brain. I can't lie because I won't. I can't remember anything. Also bizarre was Jason routinely cried hysterically in his interviews. He claimed it was due to his anxiety, which he was being treated for by a therapist. So all of Frizzo's police instincts were going wild. This couple, and specifically Kelly, absolutely had something to do with Chris's disappearance, and she had a sinking feeling that they weren't going to find him alive. Oh, Yeah. Digging into Kelly's life and cell phone records, Frizzo discovered that she was also having an affair with another coworker, a man named Eric Erickson, who worked at Oldenburg as well. Under Chris's supervision, Eric was new on the job and didn't want to make waves with his boss or Kelly's marriage, but Kelly had informed him the affair with Chris had been long over and she was actually in the process of getting divorced from Jason. Neither of these things were true.
0: Oh, shit.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Sensing another love triangle, the cops asked Eric to submit to a polygraph test, which he passed with flying colors. The most revealing information Frizzo gleaned from Erickson was that he and Kelly often rendezvoused across from the park and ride where Chris's car had been abandoned. Hmm. Kelly had previously stated that she had no idea where the park and ride was, nor had she ever been to that location. So she had lied. This would be the first of many, many lies that the authorities would catch Kelly telling. Kelly told Frizzo that she brought a pre-made lasagna over to Chris's apartment on the evening of October 14th, the very last day that anyone saw or heard from Chris alive. Kelly's description of the evening didn't match up to the evidence. For example, she said that she had made garlic bread on a skillet on the stove, but when the house had been searched, several household items had been piled upon the clean stovetop and no skillet was found in the sink. Kelly claimed that she had brought the dishes from her house and washed them in Chris's sink before returning home. Chris's sink, well, first of all, that's weird. Yeah. Number two, Chris's sink was full of plastic containers he had been washing in preparation for his move. So it just, it looked like he was just packing up. His his kitchen was spotless, like nobody had ever prepared any food or eaten in it, you know? Weird. Mm-hmm. Kelly claimed that she never spent the night over with Chris out of respect for her husband and that October 14th was no different. She went home at some point and played computer games for the most of the night. She was vague on the time and said she couldn't remember if or when Jason was or if when he came home. So she played like the, I don't know, I don't remember card here. She also claimed that she hadn't been in touch with Chris since that evening. Meanwhile, Kelly and Jason's neighbors reported that on the evening of October 14th, they heard what sounded like construction work for almost four hours in the very, very wee hours of the morning. <laughs> drugs. <laughs> yes. Well, it could be drugs. It could be something more sinister. Kelly and Jason seemed to have been running electric saws or perhaps Sanders, from 11 p.m. to 3 in the morning. David Saylor and his uncle Todd thought it was very bizarre and asked Jason what they had been up to the next day. Jason told them they were remodeling their house, which, who does that from 11 p.m. to 3 in the morning?
0: Yeah, if that shit was going on in my neighborhood, everyone would be talking about it.
1: They'd be on next-door bitching. Yeah. (laughs) There'd be a lot of next-door bitching going on. Yeah.
0: For a good reason.
1: Absolutely. Um, they said specifically that they were refinishing their stairs. Later on, David noticed two funny things. One, he had never seen any construction materials being brought into or out of the home. And two, the next time he stopped by, he noticed that the stairs remained exactly the same. So they hadn't refinished shit. I love nosy neighbors. (laughs) <laughs> me too
0: like i really do there the nosy neighbor in um was the one that caught that guy who like killed his whole family as well yeah like, I'm lit. yeah and, wanda right Oh, no, and um the story that we haven't covered the one with the um the guy who put his like daughters in the oil well Oh, Chris Watts. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have to do that one eventually. Yeah. But his neighbor, the guy was the one that was
1: like, he's acting weird. Like, there's something yeah, going on. Yeah. With him. Less nosy neighbors. Yep. Y'all taps on the people in your neighborhood. Yep. Don't trust anyone. Nope. You can't see us right now, but we're both holding our fingers up to our eyes and pointing them at you. <laughs> <laughs> neighborhood watch. Neighborhood watch. We're going to have a love murder neighborhood watch. Everybody watch your neighbors. You guys, you get like, a lifetime supply of stickers if you catch a murderer. <laughs> I have very little else to offer you.
0: <laughs> but you have to submit your story.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ooh, and then we can cover it. We'll interview you. It'll be great. Just catch, guys, everybody, let's catch some murderers. <laughs> After fighting with the Michigan State Police to focus the investigation on the Cochran's and what was looking like a homicide case... Chief Frizzo was finally granted a search warrant for the Cochrane home in early March 2015. During the search, the police found copious amounts of weapons, including guns, knives, medieval weaponry, like I'm talking, like battle axes and like weird medieval mace type weapons, like Renfair stuff, like Renfair, but like dangerous, like very dangerous. Sharp could actually injure people, like, role-playing bizarreness. So weird. It's, it's so weird. It's like, it's like LARPing, but with deadly weapons. <laughs> so weird. Um, they also had piles of ammunition. Uh, they also discovered blood spatter on the kitchen ceiling tiles Shit. and rolls of industrial plaster crap, which is the type you use to wrap a body in. Not if looking you're good. Not looking good, no. They also found a bizarre manuscript written by Jason called Where the Monsters Hide, which was the inspiration for the title of our source material. Here, M. William Phelps, the author, describes the bizarre storyline. This is hella sus, guys. Under the title, Jason sketched out a projection of a novel outline. He wrote how a person cannot truly love without knowing hate. From there, he wrote about how monsters have predators. He then applied the nature versus nurture argument, noting how some monsters were born and some were made before concluding monsters have no idea they're monsters at all. As the outline continued, Jason mentioned how monsters put on a face for the world, for the general public and family. Then he described a scent and a look evil has, completing the thought with how only true evil recognizes evil. Ending the first of what would be 17 pages, Jason explained his theory that a predator can at times be the prey, and the prey can at times be the predator. He wrote a book, Kelly later explained. I lived with him. She laughed. The book is about him. He was trying to make himself the good guy in the book when in the end, he really was the bad guy. According to Kelly, Jason's outline was a riff on Dexter. I think we've all seen Dexter, but in Dexter, the Showtime series, which you should check out if you haven't seen. I haven't seen it. You haven't seen it? Oh my gosh, you'd like it. Yeah.
0: Okay, maybe that'll be a good one when we're delirious and trying to-
1: it's perfect. Like, this is actually really terrible, but it is actually perfect, like, hazy breastfeeding. Okay, cool. Honor, because once they, like, get a little sentientness, you cannot actually watch anything gruesome around them ever again. So the last thing is when they're, like, little breastfeeding blobs. I watched, like, Game of Thrones or something while I was <laughs> breastfeeding her. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> Um, so yes, Dexter is about a forensic blood specialist working for the police who at night roams through the town, murdering those people in society that he believes are bad, pedophiles, drug pushers, abusers, et cetera. Jason was making the call on who the bad guy is, Kelly added, and you can't. We're all human. You cannot pick and choose who the bad guys are. On the second page of the outline, Jason wrote first chapter underneath the title, then introduced his main character, someone named Jason Quack-Quack.
0: Oh, God.
1: Uncle Quack-Quack was a nickname his mother-in-law later said that Jason's nieces and nephews called him for reasons she did not know. I don't know either. Sounds bizarre. Yeah, sounds quacky. (laughs) I like what you did there. In a series of bullet points, Jason described his character, the Jason the world sees within what is a normal life. His list included married, no kids, always in pain, halfway to crippled, not quite to middle age, angry at life. So this all sounds a lot like Jason. Until we get to has his own hit list and superhero shoes. I don't don't know. I don't know about that last one. I wish they could extrapolate on what the superhero shoes were. Is
0: Jason alive still?
1: Jason's still alive at this point, yes. So could they ask him about this shit? They do, eventually. Yeah, so we'll get into it. Over the door of the house where fictional Jason lived was a wooden sign. If you're not invited, you're not welcome. Enter at your own risk. I mean, they ask him about this, but he basically just says... This is a work of fiction, like Dexter. It means nothing, essentially. <laughs> three, the second chapter outline focused on Jason's family life. His character was argumentative, beats wife, scares children, blows what little money the family has on booze and stupidity. Chapter four began to paint a picture of a darker Jason, the character as a child molester. Oh. Yeah, this Jason had just been released from prison after a second bid for harming kids in a sexual manner. But jail had not done anything to deter the character from immediately searching for other victims. At some point in the book, Jason Cochran wrote, he wanted to see this character stumped, as he termed it, which meant tied to a tree and then covered with honey so fire ants could kill and consume. Chapter five had one word scrawled on the page, rapist, no further explanation. Six ventured into the territory of Jason, the character coming from a family of killers. Jason's kin works the traveling carnival while searching for their victims. Chapter seven introduced a new unnamed character, a sex worker, a stripper. She was going to be dissents infested is how he wrote it, meaning disease infected. He, He had terrible grammar. Uh, She was a homewrecker, and by the end of the book, she would have two victims under her belt. The next chapter introduced the politician with one note attached, monsters come in many shapes. In the end, Quack Quack excuses himself, and the outline ended. Kelly said Jason had actually written and completed this book, though no one could find it when the house was searched. They only found this 17-page outline. She also called her husband a typical psychopath. Jason had a dark side he could hide from the public and those who knew him best.
0: Typical psychopath is what I would want Dan to define me as. (laughs)
1: Yeah, this is not something I look for in partners. (laughs) Typical psychopath is not how I would describe my husband, nor would I put it under a list of attributes that I, I would hope my future partner would have.
0: You know, he's a typical psychopath. Casual,
1: casual. What's more, a search of Kelly's cell phone uncovered a video of Jason walking and hiking with ease at a waterfall, laughing and chatting while he executed energetic physicality. It appeared that his disability had simply been a ruse, meaning that Jason was 100% capable of hard work, perhaps even the muscle power it would take to kill and dismember a grown man. Oof. Oh, they're both suspect, and it looks entirely possible that either one of them could have killed Chris. Yeah. The very next day, on March 6th, 2015, the Cochranes fled Michigan to go back to Hobart, Indiana, their hometown. A personal investigator had also been following the case and had luckily placed a GPS on their car, and they were able to track them. Michigan State Police and Chief Frizzo informed the FBI and local Indiana authorities to the flight. At that point, the FBI conducted another more thorough search of the Cochran's Caspian house and discovered a rabbit's foot under the deck that had belonged to Chris Regan. Both Cochran's had previously claimed that Chris had never been to their home. Terry O'Donnell positively identified the unique item as one that Chris had never gone without. It was a vintage piece actually made from a real rabbit's foot.
0: I used to collect those when I was little.
1: But like not the synthetic, like colorful ones, like the real, like cut off a rabbit, rabbit's feet. I thought the colorful ones were real. I don't think so. I think that the ones like you win at a fair or something were just like. The the good luck charms. Yeah. I don't think they're real. Really? Wait, Wait, let's look, look that up because this one was like an actual rabbit's foot and it looked gnarly.
0: I honestly, I always thought they were real. Let me see.
1: Oh, creepy. Creepy.
0: I thought they were fake. No, I think they're real.
1: Ew, I did not. I had enough dead parts of animals like around, hanging around a farm. So they found the vintage piece, which was actually made from a real rabbit's foot, not a synthetic mass-produced version. They also uncovered burned saw blades. What? What? Which I think the only reason you would burn saw blades is if you were trying to get rid of evidence because you used them to chop up a body. Yeah, but does a saw blade obviously
0: doesn't actually burn, so you didn't get rid of it. It just looks suspicious.
1: Yeah, but I guess it would burn the blood evidence off, right? I don't know. These people are bewildering. Yes, they are absolutely bewildering. The FBI was additionally able to confirm that Chris Regan's last known location was 100% the Cochran's residence based on where his cell phone last pinged. They are a bunch of bewildering, lying psychopaths. The authority theory was that Kelly had lured Chris over to their house and Jason or Jason and Kelly or just Kelly herself had killed him. Then it seemed likely that they had dismembered Chris, but where was his corpse? The sailors, Jason and Kelly's neighbors, offered one unsettling possibility, that Kelly and Jason had cooked and fed Chris's body to them over a neighborhood cookout.
0: You stop it right now. Could you Speaking
1: imagine? Of
0: vegan. See, this
1: is really
0: un Could you imagine coming to terms with that?
1: No, I, I'd i really like to go my entire life without eating human flesh, please.
0: I never have to worry about that as a vegan.
1: It's smart, but what if somebody was like, this is beyond meat? I, I... <laughs> I think you could tell the difference. You'd be like, no, this is pork. <laughs> At least you think it was just pork. <laughs> oh my God, that is so brutal. So brutal. So the sailors told Chief Frizzo the following during a May 2015 interview. You remember that time in early October when Jason Cochran borrowed some of your power tools? Did he ever give them back to you? Todd asked David. So Todd and David are the neighbors. Okay. The, the mere are they mention- main couple? No, they're um uncle and nephew. Okay. I was like, that's cool. You're- yeah. <laughs> that's cool for Upper Peninsula, Michigan. U <laughs> P. The mere mention of power tools sparked a memory. Both talked about the week that Chris went missing when Jason borrowed the tools. We even joked a few times, David said, turning his attention to Frizzo, about how right after Chris Regan disappeared, the Cochran's invited us over to their house three times within one week, and they had an enormous amount of meat, like kebabs one night. Human kebabs. Pizza with a ton of meat on it, another, and then tacos. Uh, Jesse, Tacos? Human tacos?
0: Human tacos.
1: Human tacos. <laughs> oh. we couldn't understand how they had all this meat seeing that they were always so poor even their dog's bellies were hanging on the ground oh. mm-hmm. we discussed the idea that maybe they cut up the missing guy and that we had eaten him well wow, why Ooh. are just
0: casually talking about this
1: well, that's what I'm wondering. Like, why do you keep going back? <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> that's on the menu tonight, guys. This guy's good eating. Frizzo looked down, took a long, hard swallow. Horrific. The idea of this possibility made her lose herself. You need to understand, Frizzo later recalled. This is after David tells me about the sawing he heard all night long. I thought, oh my God, could this be true? Could they have cut him up? Could they have fed Chris Regan to the sailors? Oh. What kind of tools did you have that you lent to Jason? David Sailor mentioned a skill saw, one of those round circular saws carpenters use to cut plywood, and a sawzall. Oh. Todd recalled an incident. I could hear fighting one night going on outside and then I heard tires squeal. That would have been right around the time that Chris Regan went missing. Those large meat meals they had eaten at the Cochrane house came up again. Todd and David talked about how fat the dogs had gotten post-October. Both said they found it odd that Jason would come over all the time pre-October 13th. He'd show up alone for bonfires they had out back of the house never with Kelly. But after Chris went missing, Kelly and Jason were inseparable. They never went anywhere alone. In the days after Chris's disappearance, both men said, they witnessed Jason leaving the house with a backpack, something he'd never done before. They thought it was strange. The assumption was that he was taking whatever pieces of Chris's body that they couldn't, you know, feed to the dogs or get rid of. And he was taking it out to these like these forest walks and spreading it around. Both Kelly and Jason were paranoid about the search and definitely left town because of it the sailor said. Oh god. Gruesome. I do have to say though that there's no hard evidence that this was the case. So we don't know. This is just a theory that was put forth. So hopefully they did not eat Chris Ruben. Ugh. Oh, gross. Throughout 2015 and early 2016, the FBI and local Michigan authorities continued to build a case against the Cochranes, sending divers into the Caspian Pit, an old deep mine now filled in with water, searching landfills and the surrounding woods for traces of Chris's remains. Meanwhile, back in Indiana, Kelly and Jason were keeping busy in a completely different fashion. Kelly had picked up a young woman at a fried chicken fast food restaurant and began a sexual relationship with her. Stop. Yeah, like they are literally on the lam from committing murder and possibly forcing other people to be cannibals. And they're just having threesomes now.
0: And Jason's parts are working?
1: Apparently enough to be involved in this. So several times the couple and the woman participated in BDSM-style threesomes. another one just, you know. Giving BDSM a bad name, Andy. These people. People. Kelly later claiming that Jason was the dominant, choking both of the women with a belt. But in a separate interview, the third party, a woman who goes by the pseudonym Alicia in the book, told the police that it was actually Kelly who was the sexually aggressive dominant who frequently used the belt on Jason. Kelly had eventually texted Alicia that she wanted a one-on-one relationship with her and the two subsequently cut Jason off from the fun and games. In February of 2016. (laughs) I like with a a choking
0: device or like, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Cut it off.
1: Yeah, I don't know how much his penis was involved in this or what that meant, but we also have already established that maybe his back injury wasn't what they claimed it was.
0: Yeah, poor little back injury.
1: Yeah, he's, he's not hurting too bad, this guy. No. In February of 2016, Chief Laura Frizzo got a shocking phone call. Jason? was dead. <gasps> I yep. Knew
0: it. I had a feeling that he was dead. You I asked you that.
1: You were like, wait, is he still alive? I'm like, for now. Not- <laughs> you lied to me. Bold face It's just hard. I think we spend so much time virtually together that you can read my mind now. It's really hard for me to surprise you with stories. When you're reading my mind, Andy. <laughs> Baby powers. Baby, our babies link us with their Icy's power Icy. baby brains. Pisces powers. <laughs> um. Yes. So Jason is dead. Kelly had called 911 around 7 p.m. saying that her husband was barely breathing, throwing up, and needed an ambulance. Jason was purple and clammy to the touch when EMTs arrived. He stopped breathing in the ambulance and died before he arrived at the hospital. The EMTs reported that Kelly repeatedly attempted to thwart their progress, distracting them and purposely putting her body between Jason and the medical professionals. They eventually had to ask her to leave the room in order to attempt to save her husband's life. Even worse... The autopsy determined that not only did Jason have a lethal dose of heroin in his system, it appeared that the cause of death had been suffocation to the face and neck. So this is looking like a homicide, not an accidental overdose. Yeah. It's not looking good for you, Kelly. Uh uh-uh. uh. Detective Jeremy Ogden took over the case and immediately noted Kelly's discrepancies in how she told the story of the night of Jason's death and also her remarkable chilling coldness. She did not seem upset at all about her husband's untimely death. Jeremy was aware that both Kelly and Jason had been people of interest in a homicide in Michigan and got a hold of Laura Frizzo to transfer the files. Frizzo was only too happy to place the case in Ogden's capable hands and the two ended up spending hours on the phone, clarifying, confirming, and strategizing. Eventually, the two developed an incredible bond. Jeremy later recalled to M. William Phelps, "'I knew there was something there "'before even meeting Laura,' he recalled. "'She's an incredible person with such a beautiful heart. "'I was so taken aback by her struggles "'and determination to get answers. "'I'd never met a woman like her before.' And she's beautiful on top of that. What a bonus. As he stared at the phone, a thought occurred to him Somehow we're going to spend the rest of our lives together. Oh no. We got a love connection, detective love connection. The couple that kills, (laughs) the couple that catches killers together stays together. Am I right? I mean, he was detecting something. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I like that. This is it's this is like a really gnarly story. So to have this beautiful silver lining love story in it makes me so happy. And did they
0: stay together forever?
1: Maybe. I can't tell you right now. We have to get to the, the exciting conclusion. <laughs> no spoilers, Andy. Um, but she, she said is we're really of questions along the way. So I'm just there are. Just throwing them out there. Um, she's really pretty, actually. She looks like Lana Del Rey. I mean, she's like older. She's like in her 40s or 50s. Um, but she Bring looks like post. older uh,
0: post. Okay. So Lana Del Rey, not Lizzie Grant.
1: <laughs> yes. She looks like okay. Lana Del Rey. She looks <laughs> here. Hold on. Let me hold up a picture of you. Cause she's really cute, actually. Oh, yeah. Can you see that? Yeah. Isn't she a babe? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And don't you see the Lana Del Rey thing? Yeah.
0: I mean, she's just got like strong features that someone would usually get plastic surgery to have.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. She definitely has like a beautiful brow, a nice like straight nose and a full mouth. Yeah. Good cheekbones for sure. And she's, her story is really fascinating. She's just, she was like a single mother um, who had her, her baby really young and then like Put herself through the police academy and, like, just worked her ass off. And she's just became the first um, female police chief in her region. So she's a really powerful person. And I also liked, it was cute. It talked about like her at the beginning and like her life story and how she really likes like these peppermint mochas at McDonald's that they only serve seasonally. But like she became such good friends with the people at McDonald's that they would like hide it so that she could have it year round, just her. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Which I thought was really cute. Shortly after Jason's death was ruled a homicide by the coroner, the FBI forwarded a tip to Frizzo and Ogden. 49-year-old Walt Ammerman was a good friend of Jason's and suspected Kelly of foul play. The two men were both big gamers and would spend nearly every evening chatting while they played online video games. Ugh. Walt confirmed, yeah, this was like one of those like serious gamers who have like the gaming chairs and the headsets and everything, you know? Walt confirmed that Jason was anxious about the ongoing investigation and Kelly was definitely the dominant force within their relationship. Ogden set up a ruse that Walt would claim to have received a letter from Jason that said if anything ever happened to him that he should send a sealed envelope enclosed within to the Iron River PD. Walt agreed to the plan and came up with the idea that the fictitious note should be signed Quack Quack, Jason's nickname and alter ego. So this is from the recorded phone conversation between Walt and Kelly. Hey, hey, Kelly said. Walt said, hello, what's going on? How are things? Then Kelly, um, listen, this has really been bugging me. You know how we, Walt and Jason, met up a few times in December. Yeah, yeah, Kelly sounded flustered, restless, concerned about where the conversation was heading. Jason asked me for my address, okay? Yeah, okay. I got a letter, like January 4th or 5th, something like that. Walt came across as sincere, convincing. And inside is a note from him. I don't know how to... The note says, Drock. Drock was Walt's nickname. If something were to happen to me, please send this in a week. Do not open it. Thanks, quack quack. There's an envelope in there with no return address, addressed to the Iron River Police Department. I mean... It's been three weeks. It's been bugging me and I I haven't been able to talk about it. Kelly took a breath. Then, oh, shit. I'm supposed to mail this and I just wanted to tell you. Oh, well, Walt said. Please don't, Kelly pleaded. I don't know how not to, Walt responded. I mean, all I can picture is his mom saying you were his best friend. How could he do this to him? Oh, Kelly sighed. So look, I just wanted to tell you. Um, You got to do what you got to do, Kelly said. She laughed and then started weeping. You're serious. You're not fucking with me. I am not screwing with you. Kelly wailed. I really got to go. I don't know what to do, Walt said. Do whatever you have to do. A day after that call, Kelly texted Jeremy Ogden. He did not respond, so she called. Things might be coming out really soon, Kelly explained, her voice beset by nerves. There is some letter being sent. It's a letter from Jason written to the Iron River PD. A letter? Yeah, it's on its way to Iron River right now. Ogden listened to Kelly stumble through words, trying to articulate what was happening while revealing as little as possible. She's struggling. She's worried, Ogden observed later. He had her. After Ogden asked Kelly what was in the letter, she said that the letter was going to answer all of the questions he had asked about Chris Regan. Hmm. Kelly and Ogden ended up meeting up at a local restaurant. The conversation was stilted as Kelly admitted to having taken a bar of Xanax before they met. That's a lot of Xanax. Yeah. bar, A Xanibar, like a whole one for one person? It's a lot. Yikes. Ogden told her that her husband had died with three times a lethal dose of heroin in his system and that he'd been suffocated. She had stared blankly at him and then asked, So you think I murdered my husband? And he said, I don't think I know. At 9 p.m. (laughs) Yeah, sizzle. At 9 p.m. The restaurant closed and Ogden hadn't gotten much else out of Kelly. As he walked her to her truck, he said, Call me when you want to talk, Kelly. Text, whatever. Hey, Kelly said. He turned. Yeah, Jason killed Chris. How? He shot him in the head and it was fast. He died fast. We have to go to HPD right now, Kelly. We need to sit down and talk. Let's go. By now, Kelly was nodding in and out, having great difficulty staying awake. The Xanax had kicked her ass. That's the one thing I was wondering. I was like, he's going to get let her get in her car and drive? Like, no, don't do that. Mess. She's a mess. The... You cannot drive. You keep falling out. You can jump in my truck and we'll secure your vehicle. I'll take you to HPD and we'll talk further about this in a room. So Kelly, when they got to the police station, went through a number of different versions of her exact story. Uh, but this is the written statement of the first story she reported to Jeremy Ogden. So I'm going to read to you guys what the written statement said uh, from where Monsters Hide by M. William Phelps, but I do have to warn you that some of the language is really explicit and it's also confusing and gross, but these are like her exact words. So I, I thought it was important to include. Do you want to
0: do, do you want to do it in like the vocoder voice, like the episode <laughs> of the child eating on sword
1: and scale? <laughs> no no I don't I'll do it in my own voice and then you guys can just all think I'm gross we can just do that okay (laughs) after a long explanation of the relationship Kelly wrote on the night of before breaking into her first version of what happens Kelly texted Chris early afternoon October 14th 2014 you coming over my house Generally, they kept the relationship and time they spent together toward Chris's house because of her respect for Jason. Chris arrived at Jason and Kelly's residence at 66 Lawrence Street near 430. He parked his car in the back of the Lawrence Street house in an alleyway so no one would see it. He'd driven his car this time, Kelly said, but would usually meet her in his truck. Kelly was cooking lasagna. She heard Chris come to that back door by the basement right off the kitchen where she and Ogden had talked. She walked from the kitchen to greet him at the door. Dinner's ready, she said. Great. Then, without another word, Kelly dropped down to give him oral sex. Since I had been blowing him off lately. Okay, like she- lasagna with the side of BJ? Uh-huh, it gets weirder. She talked about not being mad at Chris, though the relationship was becoming too much for her to handle because of her marriage and seeing several other men at the same time. Ugh. She d- didn't have the time or energy for Chris anymore, and he was sensing an end to the relationship. It was hard to keep up with all of the men and their sexual needs, Kelly wrote. Ew. I tried to see all of them every single day.
0: Oh, that's oh. a that's a lot of little whore baths all day.
1: <laughs> Maybe she's gotta, not even bothering. You got to clean up. She's just rolling into the next one oh, with the man. last one stank still on her. You gotta clean up in between. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> she went to work on Chris there in the entryway, dropping to her knees. Not using the most refined language, Kelly wrote After I had sucked his cock for a little while and he moaned with pleasure for the entire time, she stood, dropped her pants, turned around and had him put it in from behind, which I really enjoyed with him, especially for how large he was. Dude. Like, I think at this point, she's just screwing with Jeremy Ogden, the detective, by writing this pornography.
0: Yeah. Like, I mean, what is the also, point like, of this?
1: Pills. She's also on pills. So yeah. I don't I don't know and what she, this is.
0: And like you said, she majored in psychology. Like, she probably likes
1: fucking around with people. I think that's what she, I think she's yeah. enjoying this. And she knows by making this explicitly sexual, yeah. she's going to make him feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, I feel uncomfortable just reading this. <sighs> it's it's so bizarre and it's it's very off-putting I mean if that's what she's trying to do it's working also where's the
0: lasagna like that's all I (laughs) yeah is it burning is it burning like who lets a good
1: lasagna go to waste come on
0: (laughs) can't let it get too fried (laughs) no the noodles will just get hard and it's just not Uh,
1: the worst I think I want lasagna for dinner (laughs) now (laughs) sounds delicious At that moment, she claimed while they were having intercourse, she might have heard a shot. She wasn't sure. Yet, within a second, Chris's lifeless body fell on her back. This threw her off balance and they tumbled down the basement stairs. The way she described it, Kelly had no idea what happened. She claimed she did not know that Jason was even home. She had no explanation for how she (sighs) knew Chris was only shot once and he died instantly, adding that there was no movements or sounds with the exception of me cracking my head open. Hitting her head on a board halfway down the stairs, Kelly blacked out. Coming to some time later, Kelly opened her eyes to see Jason standing over her. His twenty-two caliber rifle was pointed directly at her head. This is your entire fault, Jason uttered. If you weren't such a stupid fucking whore, I would not have had to kill him. Jason, <laughs> Andy's doing a shrug. <laughs> Jason yelled at her briefly and continued to call Kelly mean and nasty names. Scared and disoriented, Kelly tried to stand. She was dizzy and out of it, blood trickling down her forehead. Chris's inert body was slumped over her. She had a hard time getting up. Jason turned, walked away, and began looking for something. Kelly didn't know what he was doing. After having a difficult time pulling herself out from underneath Chris's heavy dead body, Kelly found her bearings, wiggled herself out, stood, and watched her husband. Jason rummaged through a toolbox, found something, then turned around. Kelly looked closely into the darkness of the basement, a set of hemostats, she thought, realizing what Jason had in his right hand, forceps, a pair of medical pliers, a surgical tool used mainly for clamping and controlling bleeding. Jason walked towards his wife and placed the barrel of his 22 on her head, handing her the forceps. Get that fucking bullet out of his head. What? Pull that bullet from his head with those. Kelly bent down and acted as as if she was extracting the bullet from Chris's head, saying later she was able to convince Jason she found it and flushed it down the toilet. Jason put his gun down and dragged Chris into the middle of the basement floor, stood and took a long look at him. Then he turned and began to gather tools for a way to dispose or minimize the size of Chris's tall, big body. At 53 years old, Chris was just over six feet tall, a slim 170 pounds, in excellent physical condition. Chris was lying in the center of the basement floor. Let's get rid of his car now so no one is suspicious of it, Jason said. It was getting late. It was dark out by this time. Don't fucking draw any attention while we do this. Understand, Jason said. Okay. So there's a footnote that M. Uh, William Phelps wrote and he said, within all of this recounting, Kelly plays the role of subordinate wife scared of her husband. Yeah. She presents herself as a timid, cowering woman willing to do anything he wants, fearing for her life. My professional opinion and that of two law enforcement sources after studying this case is that Kelly reversed the roles. Hmm. So that's, their theory is that jason was actually the weaker one and kelly was in charge of this whole thing
0: well yeah and that would play with the their threesome friend too
1: exactly yeah i'm going to drive it off a cliff into a lake so no one finds it jason said then hopped into the driver's seat of chris's car kelly claimed she was told to follow close behind in their truck How about that parking lot in Bates, Kelly suggested, just before they left. She wanted Chris's car to be found, she claimed. If Jason drove it down into a lake, it would be decades before it was discovered. Jason agreed, though she never said why, and headed for the park and ride in Bates. Jason pulled in first, parked the car, hopped out, jumped into the truck. Hurry, now go, he said. Kelly took off back home. Drive faster, Jason urged. Kelly didn't understand his sudden need for speed because the last thing they needed was to get pulled over. He had me race toward Ice Lake Road, Kelly said. I had really hoped we'd get pulled over, but the luck I was hoping for wasn't there that night. When they got back to 66 Lawrence Street, Kelly jumped out of the truck and started throwing up. Jason stood over her, yelling. As she finished and was wiping her chin, Jason got in her face, go inside and make me a burger and fries. <laughs> what? Like, really? Is this what this guy is thinking about after committing murder? The guy was hungry. I wanted to run and escape, but was paralyzed by what I had just seen in front of my eyes. As Kelly flipped burgers, tended to the fries, she vomited into the frying pan. Uh, human or cow meat? <laughs> I think I think it was cow meat <laughs> Oh, Jason went back down into the basement 10 minutes later as she cleaned up her own puke she could hear Jason walking up the basement stairs and into the kitchen after all I've done for you you're so fucking weak so stupid I cannot believe you did this to me Kelly stared at him Jason grabbed the frying pan and hurled it across the room grease and hamburger meat smashed against a newly painted kitchen wall clean that up he screamed now Very bitch detailed. Very detailed. She's spinning quite the story
0: here. Freshly painted wall. You could still smell the paint.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. On her hands and knees, Kelly scrubbed the wall and floors as she cried. This comment stuck in my mind for such a long time, she said in her statement, because he took the man I loved, Chris, from me in such a horrible, senseless act right in front of me. Which also doesn't make sense even with the beginning of her statement when she's talking about how she didn't really have time for Chris anymore because she was banging all these other dudes. Yeah. So she's contradicting herself within the story, you know? Yeah. You know why I did this, Jason said. He laughed. I did this specifically to hurt you for no other reason than to make you hurt, feel pain. Kelly stood and stared at her husband. I'm teaching your whore ass a lesson. (laughs) So she's just spinning our yarn here so she then went on to claim that Jason forced her to participate in the dismemberment and at one point even mockingly held up Chris's dismembered hand and yelled bye bye Kelly no more being a whore to your husband this is just her sick imagination unless this was something that really happened I mean they definitely dismembered him but i'm wondering if like most of these things that he did she actually did you know yeah i i don't know i think she's just trying to make
0: herself seem as much like the like that the victim mhm
1: you
0: know? so she's painting whatever adding whatever fluff
1: colorful details she can to make it seem more like she's a battered woman yeah Kelly said then he made her get garbage bags to wrap the body parts. Afterwards, they drove to the Pentoga Trail, where they dumped the bags in various places good distances from the road deep in the woods. The problem was the cops didn't believe Kelly. While Chris Regan had certainly spent his last evening on Earth at the Cochran's, the authorities didn't believe the Kelly as a victim narrative. Despite spending weeks searching the Pentoga Trail, they weren't finding any evidence to corroborate Kelly's story, i.e. the dismembered body parts. Unfortunately, at this point, they only had circumstantial evidence and a wild tale. The blood spatter evidence that they had found at the house had been too corroded by bleach and paint to pick up DNA. Ugh, the detectives desperately needed to find part of Chris to go forward with charging Kelly with murder. It seemed obvious to all involved that Kelly had been the mastermind behind Chris's killing and that she had then killed the only witness to the murder, her husband, Jason, while attempting to make his death appear as though it were an accident. Now freed of the only person who could contradict her story, she could paint herself as a meek, subservient woman who was terrified of her jealous, controlling husband. The cops weren't buying it. Okay, good. Yeah, they totally saw through her. In April of 2016, while the detectives were getting closer to collaring Kelly for murder, they were also getting closer to each other. (laughs) (laughs) Chief Frizzo told M. William Phelps the following. We texted daily about the case, Frizzo said later, and yes, I am immediately in love with this man's mind. In all of my years of working in law enforcement, I have never worked with anyone who thought the way I did, or especially the way Jeremy did. The respect she had for his skills was beyond her feelings for him personally. He saw things exactly how I did, and when I couldn't figure something out, he did. It's like, as cliched as it sounds, he was the end of all of my unfinished sentences.
0: Oh, my God. I was completely in love with him.
1: In March, when he came up to see the area to better help in his investigation, that first time I ever saw him, it was like I had known him forever, and I fell even further in love. He didn't know how deep I fell, but I think he could certainly sense it. It was seriously, like, the chemistry was so strong between us, even just on the phone. There was one day in April 2016 when Ogden and Frizzo conversed nonstop about the case. After one particular exchange, Frizzo said, Can I ask you a question? Yes. Do you want to kiss me? Jeremy paused. Frizzo got nervous. Had she crossed a line? Yes, Jeremy said. Frizzo smiled. And our relationship took a very hard turn. And our work together became even better. We had to be careful, though, because there is no way we could allow anything at all to hinder this investigation. We had to always be completely professional. So this was going to be complicated. Yeah, I was going to say, do they have to keep it a secret or? Not that I I know about. I mean, they're both working the case, but they're in completely different states and different departments. There's no like hierarchy there, you know? Yeah, I'm sure they had to disclose to somebody, but it's not a typical HR situation because they don't technically work together, you know? Exactly. In spring of 2017, Kelly attempted to escape to her cousins in Kentucky. She was caught and extradited back to Michigan. Kelly was significantly worse for wear when the detectives caught up with her. She had clearly been on a meth binge. Oh! <gasps> hmm Her behavior... Oh. Was bizarre and erratic, and her mugshot depicts a face full of scabs. Ew, it's like that bad. It's really bad. Here, I'll show you a picture. We'll definitely put one up on the uh, on the social media, guys, because she's she's not only like looks off; she looks psychotic. It, it's it's a very disturbing mugshot. You see that? Whoa, whoa, another one of her. Whoa. Isn't she terrifying? Yeah. She's a tall yeah. girl, too. She's a tall she's a big girl. Yeah. Ooh, she gives me the chills. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ogden questioned Kelly upon her return, and she revealed that Chris had to die so Jason could get his power back she now admitted that the murder had been premeditated jason had wanted to go to chris's apartment and attack him there but kelly convinced him that that wouldn't be smart <laughs> all of this isn't smart no Ugh. i also think the book and the documentary like kind of make her like this intelligent mastermind who's doing all this like nefarious plotting and diabolical planning and she's so smart and well i think she is smarter than your average, you know, murderer. She's not that smart. I think she's, she's just a psychopath who likes toying with people, you know?
0: yeah. She's like a drug addict who had a little bit more education than other drug addicts.
1: Exactly. (laughs) She had like more opportunity to go on the right path and chose not to. Yep, exactly. Mm -hmm. Kelly revealed that the two had made an infidelity pack on the night of their wedding. She said, we had an agreement between us, Kelly said. Normal people, when they get married, they share agreements or vows. The two of us, our agreement was that if one of us cheated on the other, that it was that person's obligation to kill the lover themselves. Oh my God. Oof. And if that person did not kill the lover, then the spouse was entitled to just kill the other spouse. A murder pact. Kelly gave an example using her and Jason. Ogden wanted to know how Eric was still alive, that 2nd coworker she was having sex with at the time Chris Regan was murdered. We thought about that, you know, but I cared about him. We shared something in common. What was that? that Eric didn't have a choice with what was given to him throughout his life, post-traumatic stress disorder, because Eric was also a veteran. Kelly talked about how Jason had actually pulled up in front of Eric's house one day and threatened to go in and kill him, but Kelly had talked him out of it. Ogden wondered how she did that. Jason worshipped the ground I walked on. What do you get out of this agreement between the two of you? Moving the pawns, the prearrangement of what's going to happen or what happens afterward is where the enjoyment for me lies. The hunt, the stalk, the fantasy of what she's about to do, the constant thought of taking a life, playing God, killing by effect made Kelly feel more alive than anything else. Sex, drugs, booze, or romance. Psycho. She's totally psycho. On May 17th, 2017, Chief Frizzo took Kelly, a dog handler, and her canine, Hella, as well as several law enforcement officers out near Crystal Falls Township, where Kelly indicated they would find Chris's remains. After Kelly indicated to Frizzo where they might find him, she was brought back to her Caspian house, where Kelly turned over forceps that she said had been used on Chris's skull, and told Frizzo where she could recover the gun used to kill Chris. Two days later, it would be pulled out of the Caspian pit, exactly where Kelly said it would be. Finally, Kelly was telling the truth. Kelly was taken back to jail, and it was time for Hella and her handler to head back to Wisconsin, where they were based. Frizzo begged them to try one last location along the trail Kelly had indicated. It was there that Hella alerted, and Frizzo found herself face to face with Chris's skull partially embedded in the ground Frizzo immediately went over to it and knelt down in a prayer position she took a moment so we do have a picture of this actual moment which will include okay for you guys um of like the moment that they found the skull and that she basically just dropped to her knees and started praying she said, I was in shock and speechless. The tears didn't even come like I expected. For almost two years, I had imagined my reaction when or even if I ever found Chris Regan. It was always such a roller coaster. I just knelt there and I played the entire investigation over through my mind and I prayed. I thanked Chris for being by my side and directing me to him. He was with me throughout the entire investigation, even after. Cra- oh. Chills. Crazy. Kelly was, of course, officially charged with first-degree murder of Chris Regan and faced additional charges of larceny, conspiracy to commit dead bodies to disinterment and mutilation, concealing and abducting an individual, and lying to a police officer. Kelly's trial began on Valentine's Day. She had rejected several plea deals and was taking her chances with a jury. Her defense attorney presented her as a victim, a subservient woman who lived in fear of her violent, domineering husband. Uh, Who she killed. Yes, whom she killed. (laughs) Ogden Frizzo, co-workers of Chris and Kelly at Oldenburg, the sailors, you know, the neighbors, and Eric Erickson all testified amongst others. Ogden and Frizzo believe that had they not been caught, Eric would have been Kelly and Jason's next victim. Yep it's It seemed like a part of the infidelity for her wasn't just the cheating on her husband. It was like the riling him up and yeah. get, getting him to commit murder for her. So when he
0: came in and said that they had like an open marriage, do you think that she just made him come in
1: and say that? I think she made him say that because there was just too much evidence that they were having an affair for her to like either A, pretend they weren't having an affair. yeah. Or B, they would lean too heavily on Jason if it was found that like he didn't know about the affair or he was jealous about it, then they would be like, oh, this makes sense. If he was like, no, I knew about it and I wasn't jealous, then he'd look like a worse suspect, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it was just a plan of Kelly's to try to get the suspicion off of them as a couple, you know? Yeah. Didn't work. Did not work. Bad plan. Eric was chilled at how narrowly he had avoided violent death and how once intimate he had been with a potential serial killer. Oh, Oh. like, can you imagine how close you find out that you were inside of somebody who could have killed you and killed their previous lover and their husband? (laughs) It's terrifying.
0: i feel like my dick would crawl back (laughs) into (laughs) itself
1: for years i'd be celibate maybe forever i'd be like my dick makes terrible choices it no longer gets to have sex (gasps) oh my god god this poor guy jesus (sighs) i mean i guess not poor guy he survived he's luckier than chris and jason but geez louise Kelly took the stand in her own defense and testified that she had been witness to Jason torturing and killing animals, that he had pointed a gun at her head and threatened to kill her at least 20 times throughout their marriage, as well as how Jason was becoming increasingly jealous and unhinged after their move to Michigan. She claimed all of this eventually drove her into Chris Regan's arms Yet, she didn't shed a tear for her lover and supposed white knight when asked to describe how she had been forced to participate in his murder and dismemberment. Kelly was shockingly unemotional and frank and never even once glanced at the jury. Yeah, she's a psychopath. She's a psychopath. Like, yeah. you, if you were forced to dismember someone you loved, you would never be okay again. You would never be able no. to tell that story without completely breaking down.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: This is not a normal human behavior. No. The jury deliberated for only two and a half hours before announcing they had reached a unanimous verdict. Kelly Cochran was found guilty of all charges. And in May of 2017, she was sentenced to mandatory life in prison without the possibility of parole. Good, good. Elwap, baby. In April 2018, she would take a plea deal for murdering her husband, Jason, and get an additional 65 years on top of her life sentence. So she (sighs) will never see the light of day. Thank God. Thank God. God, this woman I, is a monster. Oh, I,
0: have, I have some news that might help me get some of this alleviated. I also <laughs> killed my husband. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, babe. No. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that's how that works. You're not getting out of here. <laughs> Laura Frizzo ended up being fired as sheriff by a corrupt city manager who had previously been accused of sexual harassment what? Yeah. So they go into this, like M. William Phelps is like pissed about it. The author of the book is like, she is one of the most amazing law enforcement professionals that I've ever uh, like witnessed. And like, he's talking about how it was like a travesty of justice that she was fired. And she talks about it on the documentary too, that this guy was just deeply misogynistic. And he didn't, they just butted heads right from the beginning. And another um, law enforcement official was like, you want Laura Frizzo on your side, but she's tough. And like to rise to her ranks, she has to take no shit. She doesn't like take shit from anyone basically. So this guy like hated her from the get-go and managed to get her fired. So that sucks. She is now a criminal intelligence analyst for the high-density drug trafficking program run by the U.S. Office of National Drug Control, This was wild. She participated in the 2019 ID documentary Dead North, which I do highly recommend for you guys. Like I watched this in advance of writing the script and it's basically about Laura Frizzo. She walks you through the entire investigation and you get to see a lot more about Kelly and Jason. So I would definitely check it out. And another reason I would check this out is because she and the producers were stunned... While shooting a reenactment of finding Chris's skull, they located his jawbone on camera what? yeah, so they're shooting the reenactment of the moment they're back with Hella, the same dog and Hella's handler, and they're shooting the reenactment when all of a sudden the dog starts going wild, and so it's on the documentary, so sorry, spoiler alert, guys. but um, it's It's wild. So then they're like, no, this is unbelievable. This can't be happening. And they found Chris's jawbone that they have no idea how they didn't find before because they said that they spent thousands of hours canvassing that entire area with other dogs and with Hella, And they never found it the first time around. But while they're shooting this documentary, all of a sudden they find it. And DNA evidence confirmed that it is Chris's. That's crazy. It's wild. Like she's like shaking on the documentary. And she's like, this is just a sign that he's like still with us, you know? Crazy, crazy, crazy. And in happy news, Ogden and Frizzo are now engaged to be married. Yay. I don't know. They could already be married. I have no idea. I'm sure COVID screwed their plans uh, to get married as well as they did everyone else's in 2020. cute. Super cute. And they're like, very in love with each other the way they talk about each other is super duper cute so this was a very tragic case with a very sinister human being but it did bring two incredible humans together so we've got that on may 23rd 2017 kelly told jeremy ogden that there were several more victims scattered around indiana michigan and tennessee Oh, she claims that she got a butterfly tattoo for each person she killed. Kelly has. mm -mm, Kelly has fourteen butterfly tattoos covering her body. What? Yep, and Kelly's brother Colton suggested that he believes that there may be up to nine more victims, and recalls that Kelly and Jason casually discussed killing a man who was Facebook messaging Kelly. Now, Kelly has gone back and forth on the veracity of these claims. She later said that the butterflies were just for people whom she loved who had passed away and they weren't linked to victims. And then she denied telling Jeremy Ogden that she had killed more victims or where they were buried. She also denied the neighbors' claims that she and Jason had fed the men parts of Chris Regan, but... In one interview, she called the allegation ironic, saying that back in Indiana, before they moved to Michigan, she and Jason had fed their pigs some of their victims and then gone on to slaughter them and sell them to unwitting customers. So perhaps there had been a way in which she had created inadvertent cannibals. But we don't know. She likes to fuck with people. So why is stay
0: in jail forever?
1: And she is, thank God. I mean, I think think that she's a liar, which makes this all speculation, but it's also possible. I mean, the way she dispatched of two men she supposedly loved makes it very easy for me to imagine her killing anyone. Also, there is, for people who are interested in Kelly Cochran... There's a deep dive season of True Crime Bullshit, the podcast. I did not get a chance to listen to the Kelly Cochran season. I have listened to his coverage of Israel Keys and it was really good. So I'm assuming that his Kelly Cochran coverage is as well. And I think that they he gets more into the potential victims and the possibility of who she may have murdered. Um, so if you guys want more information on Kelly, I would recommend checking it out. And let me know if it's something that I should definitely tune into. I have limited time these days as I'm trying to do double episodes to uh, get us ahead for our maternity leave. And I have a two-year-old. But if it's really good, let me know and I will definitely make sure I tune back in. Well, anyways, Kelly will have a lot of time to consider coming clean if she is actually a serial killer because she's only 38 years old. That is a long life behind bars. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't think that this, this is gonna be the last we hear about her though. Uh, what do you think? I hope so. I mean, I hope it
0: is too I, 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 I agree mean with you, I don't think so.
1: best case scenario, she's just a fucking bullshitter. She's just somebody who's making these stories up for attention and she didn't actually kill anyone else. What do you think?
0: No, I think she definitely killed
1: other people. oof, yeah, probably,
0: yeah. I I just don't know how they can't figure that out. Like, how come they can't, like, look up missing persons cases and see if they had any involvement with her?
1: I don't actually know. So they did not get into, in either the book or the documentary that I saw, what the ongoing investigation looks like. Yeah, They just mentioned that she told very conflicting stories. And it was very hard to go off of what she said and to take it as the truth. Maybe that's something that he gets into more in True Crime Bullshit, The that podcast. I'm not so that, sure. Yeah. I mean, I just
0: like, it's like, I feel like if you look at those states, you know,
1: and And there's look where people. it's possible that she might have had a connection because she did have very significant connections to these two victims, clearly. Exactly. Exactly. So we'll see. I mean, one thing we know for sure is she is a cold-blooded psychopath.
0: And a druggie.
1: Yeah. And not a nice, chill, like shaggy Scooby Doo tribe guy. <laughs> not, not just a, a lover of the leaf over here. <laughs> no.
0: Just <a> scary, <laughs> scratch your face off, methy.
1: Yeah. Druggie. Terrifying. In conclusion, maybe you should trust but verify the meat source of your neighbor's barbecue. Just in case, especially if you've heard them up sawing potentially a human body all night, the night before. So gross. So gross. Um,
0: additionally, might be a good idea to not consume an entire Xanax bar before going to meet with your detective to talk about a murder case that you might be guilty of.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a terrible idea. In fact, I don't think you should ever take a whole bar of Xanax. Ever. Unless you have really, really bad anxiety. Jeez Louise. <laughs> and as always, remember, we're all just one really bad affair away from getting murdered. Thank you so much for listening, guys. See you next week. Bye.